We're finishing up our, our sermon series on, on prayer. And we've covered, uh, I think, just about every basic form of prayer that, that uh, the Bible speaks of. We're ending up this morning, I think, in a fitting way, talking about prayer as praise. Talking about prayer as praise. As Alex was singing that song, I was reminding of a, reminded of a verse that's contained in Psalms chapter 51, 57, where the psalmist says, My heart is fixed, my heart is fixed. I will praise the Lord. I'm resolved. It's, it's what I'm going to do. It's what I've got to do. My heart is fixed on that. The Bible doesn't... There's nothing that the Bible commands us to do more than praise the Lord. It's the single most frequent commanded activity in the Bible. Praise the Lord. It's central. Luke chapter 17, starting with verse 11, says this. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into the village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. The, the situation is this. Jesus is walking between Galilee and Samaria. And very frequently in this culture, when a person had leprosy, in fact, always, they weren't allowed to be in the town. They weren't allowed to have any kind of a social interaction with other people. According to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, they had to live on the outskirts of town. So what would happen is these lepers or other people who had contagious diseases would form like refugee camps in between these towns, usually alongside of the road, and then they just begged. Their whole life was begging. Uh, that's the only way they could ever, uh, could ever live. And so here Jesus is walking between Samaria and Galilee, and he comes upon these ten beggars. They stood at a distance and hollered out to Jesus because the law specifies that you're not allowed to come within, I think it is, 30 paces of somebody if you have a skin disease like leprosy. When Jesus saw them, he said, Go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, the reason Jesus told them to go show themselves to the priest is because Leviticus also specifies, we're dealing with a culture here that doesn't have professional physicians as such, uh, the high priest was in charge of certifying whether or not a person was clean or unclean. And they would actually give them a certificate if uh, they were somehow healed from their skin disease and, and allowed back into society. The priest would decide whether you had to stay on the outskirts of, of town or whether you could come in and be a part of society. That was his decision. So when Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest, he's really saying, okay, you're healed. Now go verify it and get, get back on with your life. So they're on the way to show themselves to the high priest. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The word used in Greek there is soteria, which means wholeness. Uh, sometimes that phrase is translated, your faith has saved you. And some commentators feel that Jesus was saying, not only has your faith cleansed you of your leprosy, but your faith has saved you. It's cleansed you of any spiritual uh, disease you might have. You're saved, in other words. The lesson of the Samaritan leper, let's pray. Lord, your word is precious to us. Your word is precious to us, Lord. And I pray, God, that your spirit would make it come alive to us here this morning. You have created us for your glory. You've created us for your praise. And I pray, God, that this morning you'd use these words to produce in us a heart to praise, a motivation to praise, a desire to praise. 
Make of us, Lord God, a praising people, Lord, and, and, and use this morning with the preaching and the sermon to do the, and, and the singing to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus asked the question, I'm going to get rid of this thing before I knock it over. Jesus asked the question, where are the other nine? Weren't all ten healed? Why did only one return back? And it would be ordinary, I think, for us, or at least understandable, to be pretty critical of these nine lepers. I mean, think to yourself, geez, I mean, how could these people be healed of leprosy? And not return and say thank you. And not give God the glory for it. How crass, how carnal, how utterly secular of them to not even take the time out to return to Jesus and say thank you after all that Jesus had done for them. Isn't that a little bit inconsiderate? And it is. But maybe we shouldn't be so quick to judge. Let's think for a second here. Put yourself in the position of these ten lepers. They're on their way to get a form of verification that will allow them for the first time and Lord knows how long re-enter society. Before they got leprosy, I don't doubt that they had wives and maybe children and friends. And how long has it been since they have been allowed to be with their family and friends? How long has it been since they have felt a human hug? How long has it been since they talked to an ordinary person of society up close? 5, 10, 15, 20, maybe 25 years being ostracized from society, not allowed to interact with them in any way. And here, finally, there's a ray of hope. A door is open. They get to re-enter society. And as they're walking, their, their crumpled up, grotesque-looking skin begins to turn smooth and pure and or normal. And think of the dreams that would begin to explode in their head. Finally, what it will be like to be with their family and be with friends and be an ordinary person. And they begin to have dreams and begin to have schemes and plans of where they're going to do and what they're going to do with their life now that they've got their healing. And I don't doubt that their walk turned into a trot and their trot turned into a sprint as they were eager, very, very eager to get back to their lives that they'd been away from for so long. Perhaps they thought something like, well, we got what we asked for. We got our healing. It's our healing now. He's not going to take it back, and so let's run with it. Let's run with it. We've missed too much time. We've missed too much life, and now we've got to get back into things. Or maybe they even had this kind of a feeling. I, can, I could understand if, if some of them felt like this. For 20 years, I've been this leper. For 20, year, I, 20 years, I've been this grotesque, ostracized person of society. And why should I return and give thanks? Doesn't God owe me the 20 years that I've been ostracized from society? Why should I give thanks for what people, most people have all their life? Maybe there was even some of that. So what's more surprising, I think, than the fact that the nine didn't return is the fact that one of them did return. One put his plans and his schemes on hold and said, I got to go back. Before my family, before my wife, before my kids, before I get back into society, I've got to go back. What's surprising What's at least different is the fact that one of them took the time out, put all those other plans and schemes on hold, and went back and fell at the feet of Jesus and glorified God and give, gave thanks to Jesus for the fact that he'd given them the gift of healing. Something was different about him that set him apart from the other nine. Maybe it was because he was a Samaritan. Maybe it was because he was a Samaritan. And Samaritans in this Jewish culture were at the bottom of the totem, totem pole. In the eyes of Jews, they were beneath Gentiles. They were seen as being subhuman. They had life hard anyways. 
And so maybe this person who had not had, a, had any favors done for him in his whole life, even when he was, when he was healthy, maybe for him the, the gift that Jesus gave him stuck out all the more. And so he was more inclined to be grateful. But in any case, he saw something that the other nine did not see. He saw that it was right, it was good, it was necessary, it was proper. To not take his gift and run with it, but to take his gift and run back to Jesus with it. He saw that the gift of healing that he had was not his gift to run with. The gift came from Jesus and it belonged to Jesus, and so it was right and proper and good and necessary to go back and thank Jesus for it. This man saw something that we need to be reminded of. And that is that praising God. He saw that giving thanks to God comes before religious tradition and religious propriety. Even before he went and got his official uh, announcement that he was clean and could touch somebody, even before that religious, re- religiously proper tradition, he runs back and grabs hold of the feet of Jesus. Praising God comes before religious tradition. Praising God comes before any religious practice. This man saw that praising God comes before family. This man saw that praising God comes before friends. This man saw that praising God comes before considerations of your own loneliness. And this man saw that praising God comes before getting on with your life and running with your own life. I think there's something in here for us, folks. The Bible tells us this in Ephesians chapter 1. It tells us that we are created for the glory of God. Ephesians 1 tells us that we are created and we are saved for this one primary purpose, and that is to praise God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, or the Westminster Catechism of the 17th century, a great document, asks this question. It says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief goal of man? What is the chief purpose of our being? And it answers by saying, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God gives us the gift of life. And God gives us the gift of salvation in order to display His glory. In order to show off His love. In order to show off His magnificence. To radiate Himself, as it were. To display who He is. To glorify Himself. That's why He shares life, creates beings, and that's why He saves us. Is to manifest Himself. And we fit our created role. We fit what we were most created to do and we fit what we were most saved to do when we do that, when we praise God, when we glorify God, when we recognize and say out loud His goodness and His love and His beauty. Praise, consider this. Praise is the only activity we're told in the Bible that will go on throughout eternity. It's the one thing you can guarantee yourself you're going to be doing for a very, very, very long time. Because it is the essence of what we are. We are most truly ourselves when we are praising God. Consider this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that we have nothing, we have nothing that we have not received. Whatever we have has been given to us, Paul says. Our existence, the fact that we exist, whether we exist for A hundred years or 50 years or 20 years or two days or two minutes. However long your life is, it's more than you bargained for. It's a gift of God. To exist, to live, is a gift. It is the grace of God by which we breathe. The gift of of breath. Every breath you take is is one more act of grace on God's part. It's a gift. 
There, you just got another, you, you just got another gift. Oh, there's a gift. There's another gift. Oh, there, okay, there's a gift. There's a gift. There's no metaphysical reason why God has to let you breathe. The Bible says he holds all things together in the power of his hand. Every breath you breathe is a decree of God. Here, have another one. Oh, yeah, here, you can have another breath. Here, here you go. Oh, here, I, I got a couple more. Here, you can have another breath. And every heartbeat we have, every heartbeat. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, no! No. It's a gift of God. Every thought we think, every thought we have is a gift of God in its own way. And everything that we see around us, every sight we see, your eyes, and everything you hear, and everything you smell, and everything you taste, and yes, everything you smell, at least the fact that you can smell, is a gift of God. What you smell might not be a gift. <laughs> at least not from God. It's a gift from God. And the legs that you have, the abilities that you have, the loved ones that are in our life are, are, are gifts of God. And one more reason to give God praise. Every kind word we receive, every kind touch we receive, every gracious hug we receive is one more reason to give God thanks because it doesn't have to be there. None of us earned the right to exist. None of us merited it. We don't have it coming to us. It's sheer grace. It's sheer gift. Everything that's around us. And whether the psalmist says, I will exalt the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. At all times, I've got something to praise God for. I will be praising him continually. It will be my life mode. It will be on my mind and on my lips all day long. Because I've got a lot to praise God for. Thank you, Lord. Praise God for the gift. If we can praise God for the gift of our life and the gift of our existence, how much more can we praise God for the gift of our salvation. We have nothing we have not received. And that includes, not, includes especially our salvation. The fact that you can have faith. We sometimes think that it's our doing, but it's not. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that faith is a gift of God. No one can come unto me, Jesus says. No one can come unto me unless the Father draws them. If you're a believer here this morning, that is sheer grace. God gave you the ability to believe. The fact that you know who Jesus is, the fact that you know Jesus personally, that is a gift of God. It's not a, an achievement on your part. The fact that you have any kind of love for God, that you're even concerned about God, that you even care about God, that you even care about the Bible, that is something that you would not on your own do. The Bible says that we in and of ourselves are dead in sin. But God has made us alive by his spirit, by his grace, by his mercy. Every aspect of our Christianity, our faith, our love, our devotion, even our motivation to obey him to the degree that we're motivated to obey him, it is a sheer gift of God. Completely God's grace. You didn't earn it, you didn't merit it. The fact that he died on the cross for us and the fact that we know that he died on the cross, it's all God's grace. It costs us nothing. It costs God everything. It's sheer grace. Everything is a gift. Everything. Look around you. Everything you see is a gift. Every cubic molecule of existence is a gift. Every moment of life is a gift. It doesn't have to be there. If it's there, it's because God wants it to be there. Here, I'll continue to make it exist. But we sometimes, I sometimes, am a lot like the other nine lepers. A lot like the other nine lepers. I begin to take for granted the life that I have. I, got, I have so much to be, to, to be grateful for, so much to praise God for, but I forget that. I just forget that. I wake up in the morning and I think it's my life to live, and so I begin, like the nine lepers, I begin to run with my life. 
I've got, see, see, I've got my plans and I've got my schemes. I've got my dreams. I've got my ambitions. I know what I'm going to do with my life. Here's what I'm going to accomplish. And I go about it. And that's what occupies my thought all day long. We take the gift that God's given us, the gift of our heartbeat, our thoughts, our breathing, our lives, our health, our position, and we run with it as though it was ours to run with. Sometimes we get caught in this trap. We begin to compare. We begin to compare ourselves. Worst thing you can ever get involved in. We begin to compare ourselves with other people. And we think that somehow we have coming to us or we ought to have coming to us what other people have. We're not as healthy as they are, and we can begin to complain about that. We're not as wealthy as they are. They've got legs and we don't have legs. Or they've got good eyesight and we have to wear glasses. Or, or they've had an easy life, but we've had a tough life. And their kids are stellar kids, but our kids are a pain in the neck. So many things, and we compare. They've got a better house than we've got. They look prettier than we have. They have talents, and we don't have those kind of talents. And we compare. And we let that be the standard of our happiness, or at least the, the determiner of our happiness, forgetting the fact that whatever we've got, however much or however little, we got more than we bargained for. It's all a gift. It's all a gift. We forget that. We compare ourselves. And sometimes we even think our Christianity, many times we think our Christianity is our doing. It's something we've got to trump up. We've got to have faith. We've got to obey. We've got to believe. We've got to work. We've got to be disciplined. And it's something that we're doing on our own when, in fact, the truth is that it all comes from God. And there's at least three results of this when we live our lives like the nine lepers, forgetting the giftness of life. When we forget to see through the lenses of gratitude and think thoughts of gratitude and feel sentiments of gratitude, when we forget that, several things results. First of all, we get bored with life. We get bored. An ungrateful heart is a bored heart. We get bored. Because life becomes ordinary. We, we stop seeing the wonder of it all, the, the marvel of it all. We get bored with it. It's routine. We start getting into just the ordinary routineness of life. We stop giving thanks for it, so we stop seeing it as a gift, so we take it for granted, and then we think we got it coming to us, and we get bored with it. An ungrateful heart is a bored heart. So with our Christianity, when our Christianity becomes something that it's just sort of something we do, it's a habit we get involved in, it's a routine we go through, we get bored with that. We don't see what the Bible says is true, that the earth is filled with the glory of God. The earth is filled with the glory of God. We don't see that when we just take the earth for granted, when we take our lives and each other's lives and all that we have for granted. We get bored. Second thing that happens is we begin, to miss, we begin to miss out on a whole lot of joy. Miss out on a whole lot of joy because an ungrateful heart is a sad heart. You know people and I know people and we are sometimes those people who have so much and yet complain so much. Who have so much and yet want more who are busy running away from the giver of the gift to do, to acquire, to gain more of the gift rather than stopping to return thanks on a continual basis. People who are just have, have the world at their hands and they're not happy. They're not happy. They rather see what they don't have rather than seeing what they do have. Contrast that with a lady I met one time, an extraordinary lady. I used to work as an orderly when I was going to high school. Uh, a, a real tough job, I'm telling you. Um, that's why I made that qualification about orders. Uh, anyways, I, I was an orderly in this uh, nursing home, and uh, there's a lady there that was so precious. Her name was Josephine Griffin. 
And I used to go visit her a lot, even when I was off duty, because she was so precious. She was blind. She was almost totally deaf. You had to scream in her ear. Her, her body was racked with arthritis. She constantly had bed sores because she could never get out of bed. She was always in a lot of pain. But she had a joy about her that was incredible, a peace about her that was incredible. She'd had a very hard life, as a matter of fact, some real tragedy. But she was constantly giving thanks. And it wasn't a phony thing, like living in denial. And none of what I'm saying this morning means that you're supposed to be acting happy when you're not. It's just a matter of finding reasons to be thankful, of giving God praise. And this lady would do it. She'd thank God for things in the past. She'd thank God for the little things in the present. And she'd thank God for the future when she goes to be with the Lord. She'd always say to me, she'd always say to me, I, I, she'd always, she prayed a rosary all day long. She was a Catholic lady. In fact, her, her, her hands, her biggest concern in life was that her hands would get too arthritic so she couldn't move her rosary. And, and, but she had little dents in her fingers because she prayed the rosary so much. And she'd just pray that all day long. And she'd invite the presence of God to be there. She'd say, Greg, I'm just an old fart waiting to go with the Lord. I love it. I'm just an old fart waiting to be with Jesus. And there's such a peace and a joy there. And what a marked contrast to many, many others who had things going, comparatively speaking, very, very well for them in that nursing home, and yet who had nothing good to say about anything. And what a marked contrast with many of us, many healthy people in society who have so much going for them, and yet find nothing to be thankful about. She had a joy there. The secret of joy is praise and gratitude. Following the example of the Samaritan leper. And the third thing we miss out on is this. And probably the most important thing we miss out on is this. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. God inhabits the praises of his people. Where there is praise, where there is thanks, where we are exalting God for who he is, where there are people saying true things about God, where there are people doing what they were created to do, the Bible says that God floods in there. He rushes in there like, as if to fill up a vacuum. He inhabits the praises of his people. He lives there. He dwells there. An ungrateful heart is a heart which, to a large degree, is going to live outside of the presence of God, not knowing the joy and the peace, the love of the presence of God. I used to like to go into Josephine's room just to be in the presence of God there because she lived in the presence of God. There was just a, a, an aura in that room that was beautiful. If this fits you at all, and it fits all of us to some degree, I want to lift before you the example of the Samaritan leper. When we remember God, when we remember why we exist, what we're created for, when we, mem when, we, when we remember to look for it and to give God praise, look for reasons to give God praise, consider the giftness of your life, the giftness of your existence, and the giftness of your Christianity, when you consider that, life changes a great deal. It changes your entire perspective on life. Did you ever see or ever uh, read the... Uh, uh, um, Oscar Wilder's play, Our Town. Our Town. And I think the late girl's name is Emily. Isn't that the one who died? Okay, Emily died. And then she went to the grave, and, and all the dead people sit around the graveyard, uh, and they talk. Well, she wanted to go back. All the spirits are in the graveyard. She said she wanted to go back and live one day of her life. And they said, oh, don't do it. You'll be sad. We've tried it, and it's no fun. You're better off just staying here. But she insisted. So she goes back to a time in her life to live one day over again. I think it's when she was 12 years old. And the spirits in the graveyard were right. She was grieved. She was sad. Because you look at life a little bit differently when you're dead. <laughs> or ask a person who's, 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 who's got a terminal illness. You look at life a little bit differently. Maybe someone here is terminally ill. And you know what I'm talking about firsthand. 
Emily said she was grieved because people took each other for granted. They didn't look at each other. Oh, they looked at each other, but they didn't look into each other. They never made eye contact, or they didn't make, they never connected. They took each other for granted. They talked past one another. They didn't appreciate the beauty of one another and the, and the marvel of one another. We let life slip by, precious moments slip by, because we forget that it's all a gift. We forget that this morning, I don't want to be morbid or anything, but this morning might be your last morning. We forget that life is a very precious commodity, and we don't give thanks But when you remember to give thanks and and live in the mode of praise, like David said, I will always have the praise of God on my lips, it changes things. You begin to see, as Emily saw on the other side of the grave, begin to see the preciousness of life. You begin to see the value of things around you. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. I bet it has. Or for no particular reason, all of a sudden you're impressed by the way the trees are blowing, the beauty of the trees or the the splendor of the, the wind on your face. Or you look at a little squirrel and all of a sudden you're just happy about that squirrel. Maybe I'm sounding very flaky here. But there's a lot to be thankful for. When you live life with, an eye, with eyes of gratitude, re, being, being cognizant of the Samaritan leper to always return thanks, to take the gift of life, the gift of your heartbeat, the gift of your health, the gift of your children, the gift of your spouse, and run back to Jesus with it and say, Thank you, Lord. I worship you, Lord, for your goodness. When you do that, you begin to appreciate them more and more and more. You begin to appreciate the infinite value of your children. And you thank God for every moment you have with them and with loved ones and for your health. You begin to see the the beauty of other people and the marvel of them. In fact, this way of looking at the world and interacting with the world can make our lives, in every every moment of our life, an act of worship. If we, like the psalmist, say, our heart is fixed, our heart is fixed, I will worship the Lord. If we resolve our life for it, life can become an act of worship. We separate in our culture the secular from the religious. And that's something our culture does. Spiritual stuff and non-spiritual stuff. And and most of our time is spent in non-spiritual stuff. The jobs we do, the things we got to put up with. The spiritual realm is reserved for that 3% of our life on Sunday morning and maybe a little bit before we go to bed or a little bit in the morning. That's spiritual stuff. But the rest of our life is lived as though none of that were really true. But the Bible portrays a very different perspective on things because the Bible says that the earth is filled with the glory of God. There is no moment, there is no situation, there is no time that is not filled with the glory of God if we can but see it. There's a famous, uh, he wasn't famous at the time, but a well-known monk in the 17th century. We call him Brother Lawrence. He wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. If you haven't ever read that book, I, I encourage you to read it. Brother Lawrence knew the secret of praise. His job in this monastery was to wash the dishes. And he talks about washing dishes as being the high point of his life. Because when he would wash dishes, he would be praising God. He'd be worshiping God, and the presence of God, he says, would be surrounding him. The joy and the peace and the power of God would be there as he'd be worshiping God, doing dishes, thanking God for the dishes. Now, that is a real novel concept. I haven't arrived there yet. But the point is, is that you can sanctify, you can sanctify any moment of your life. You can sanctify the mundane things of your life when you use them as opportunities to worship God. Learn from Brother Lawrence the key of walking in the presence of God by giving him praise, and God inhabits the praises of his people. Your 9-to-5 job doesn't have to be just a drudgery. It can be an opportunity to give thanks, an opportunity to worship God. Your household chores, your daily business, the small things and the major things can be opportunities to worship God. 
your interactions with your children and your walk around the block and your talks with friends and your loving of your spouse can be opportunities to worship God. And all of life can be sanctified so that, in fact, we experience as true what the Bible says is true, that the earth is filled with the glory of God. And life takes on a very different perspective. When you live life with a heart to praise God, a life of gratitude, joy begins to be a part of your life. Not only that, but when we resolve like the psalmist, resolve like the Samaritan leper to praise God, to give God thanks for all things, not only does life take on a precious quality to it, you begin to see the giftedness of it, the fact that it's all gratuitous, but your Christianity begins to come alive. Your Christianity begins to come alive because God inhabits the praises of his people. And where God's presence is, things are alive. If you found your Christianity, as we all do at times, if you found your Christianity to be a little bit on the dry side, kind of mundane, going through the motions, it's just a religion. Something Christianity must never become, a religion. But if your Christianity becomes a religion and it's kind of mundane and you're going through the motions and it's kind of all this obligation, I encourage you to find the key of praise to bring life and energy to your Christianity. When we praise God and God's reality begins to inhabit that praise, all that we know with our head, all that we know with our head begins to become a reality in our heart. And that makes all the difference in the world because what you know isn't going to change you. It's not going to revolutionize your life. It's not going to impact you. Knowledge does nothing in and of itself. But when what you know begins to be an experienced reality, then your life begins to be changed by what you know. Praise and worship. Let me just use this kind of metaphor. I am the worst poet in the world, but let me give a stab here. Praise is like the elevator that runs between the head and the heart. Praise is what takes the stuff in the head and brings it down to the heart and begins to make it an experienced reality. You know that God loves you. You know God loves you, but do you experience that? It's only in worship and praise that that knowledge begins to be a felt reality. You know that God rejoices over you, but it doesn't help your depression very much. Until you begin to enter into worship and enter into praise for, his, for the fact that it rejoices over you, and you find that that begins to make an impact in your life. You begin to experience God's joy. You know about God's power. You've got all the knowledge about God's power. They're crammed in, into your cerebrum. But it doesn't encourage you or give you hope until you enter into praise and begin to thank God. Thank God for his power. Thank God for his provision. And then it begins to be an experienced reality in your life. It's no wonder that the Bible encourages us to praise God more than any other single activity. Because praise, it is praise that opens up our hearts to the reality of God's love. Amen? It is praise that opens up our hearts to the, to, to the reality of God's beauty and the reality of God's joy and the reality of God's power. It is praise that, that brings us into the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory can begin, begin to come down upon us and God robes his presence around us and we begin to experience his love and experience his joy instead of just knowing about it. Praise and worship brings us in there. Because God inhabits the praises of his people. And that's when Christianity gets, becomes, starts to become alive. You cannot be excited about sheer knowledge. Abstract knowledge. It doesn't excite you, doesn't change you, doesn't move you. But when what you know becomes an experience, that's what begins to make a difference. And praise and worship. When you do what you were created to do, that's when that begins to happen. It becomes an experience in your life. 
And each of the last five sermons, I've ended with, with a couple of 30-second tips. And I'm going to do that again this morning. Tips on praise. First thing is this. These are really encouragements more than anything else. Psalm 57, fix your heart, fix your heart that you will praise God. It takes resolve. Commit yourself to following the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is very scriptural when it says the chief end of our existence is to glorify God. Make it the purpose of your life, because it is the purpose of your life whether you make it or not, but make it the purpose of your life to, to, to worship God and the purpose of every day and the purpose of every moment of every day to worship God. Try to, like the Samaritan leper, remember to return and give God thanks. Try to remember not to take the gift of your life and run with it. I, I visited a, a, a little, little footnote here. I visited a Buddhist temple just last week. I'm a very ecumenical man. Actually, I, was, I just brought my, my world religions class to this Buddhist temple. And we, we, we listened to this Buddhist tell us about his religion and then practice some of his religion for us. And it was an amazing thing. This particular sect of, of Buddhism called Naikuren Soshu Sokagaki of America. Um, at the center of their religion is this chant. It's about five words long. Uh, well, we asked him, to, you know, can you please uh, you know, show us how you pray? And so he did. And he rang this bell and he started going, Nam Yu Ho Regen Kyo, Nam Hu 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 Ho. After about 30 seconds, we begin to say, I begin to think at least, when's the next verse come, you know? And that's all he did. That's all he did, Nam Hu Ho Regen Kyo. In fact, every morning he repeated Nam Hu Ho Regen Kyo an hour. Every morning, every, an hour every morning, and an hour every night. And he said that throughout the day, he tried to fill his mind with Nam Hu Ho Regen Kyo. That was the center of his existence. He said, because we believe that this phrase, and it has a particular interpretation, this phrase taps into the center of the universe, the center of, of what the universe is about. And I want my center to be that center. And I find that when I, when I just, with, with single-mindedness, resolve to say this over and over and over again, my life is centered. There's peace in my life. The things are held together. We need a center, he says, and this for us is our center. And I thought, this is marvelous. He's got his theology completely right, except for what is the center. We need a center, something that we live for, something that is simple, that is there, that we can do in any situation that we're in, in any circumstance. And for the Christian, that center is to praise God. In everything, Ephesians 5, 20 tells us, give thanks, give praise to God. In everything we do, in everything we say, that is the center of our life, the center of our being, the reason for our existence. Resolve to do that. Secondly, and closely connected to that, Resolve especially to worship God and praise God when you feel least like it. When you feel least like it. When you're most inclined to run away from Jesus with your gift, stop and run back to Jesus with your gift and give him thanks. The Bible commands us to praise God. It never commands us to feel like praising God. The attitude of gratitude is not an emotion of gratitude. It's not a matter of feeling thankful. It's just a matter of, of, of being grateful for what's around you, whether you feel like it or not. Praise God, especially when you feel least like it, when you're fragmented, when things are overwhelming, when life is really getting you down, you feel the burdens of things. Or especially, Christians, when you're feeling condemned. The enemy tries to push, push us away from worship by condemning us and bringing accusations, especially then. 
in the midst of all your awareness of your unworthiness and sinfulness, begin to give praise. Maybe you can't do moral stuff really good at this point in your life. Maybe you've failed in a lot of spiritual ways, but there's one thing you can do, and this is the only thing that's important, and that is that you praise God. Give God glory, give God worship. And that's the thing that will begin to bring your life around and, 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 and bring it together. Especially when you feel like doing the opposite, resolve to praise God. And the third thing, and musicians, you're supposed to be coming up at this point. I said, here's your cue when I say three, not four or five, three. You need, we need to have special times that we commit. I've been talking about praising God throughout our day, making our day an act of worship, and that is important, central. There also needs to be time in our life personally and as a congregation when we just spend time to do nothing but worshiping God. When we just spend time to say, we love you, we worship you, we adore you, and we just exalt him. We enthrone him on high. Worship is essentially this. And please get, get this if you get anything. What makes worship worship is nothing else, nothing other than your focus. Your focus and your attention. A song is not in and of itself worship. So a song becomes worship when you are focused in on Jesus. When you, like the, the, uh, the Samaritan leper, Grab the ankles of Jesus. The, the degree to which you grab the ankles of Jesus intensely is the degree to which you are worshiping, worshiping him. The extent to which your attention is focused on Jesus is the extent to which you're worshiping him. The extent to which you can put aside your cares and put aside your troubles and put aside the distractions and not worry about how the music is going and not worry about what other people are doing and focus in on Jesus Christ. To that degree, you are worshiping him. And it doesn't matter whether the song is fast or whether it's slow, whether it's loud or whether it's soft, whether it's on key or whether it's off key, whether you're clapping hands or not clapping hands, whether you're raising your hands or not raising your hands, doesn't make a bit of difference. The question is, where are you focused? Where's your mind? Worship is worship to the degree that we are utterly sold out to it, that we lose ourselves in worship. It's a beautiful phrase that some people use. I lose myself in the presence of the Lord, or I lose myself in worship. Pour yourself into worshiping Jesus Christ. And you, you find, and I can promise this because the Bible promises it, that, the, that as you focus on Christ and exalt him and put aside all other considerations, he inhabits that praise, and you begin to experience what you're praising him for. And the more you praise him, the more you want to praise him, because the more real his glory and goodness, all the things you're praising him for, the more real it becomes. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Worship invites people, even non-Christians, into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why every morning we want to, every Sunday morning, we want to be committed to worshiping him. So let's stand as we enter into worship. Put aside all else, and let's give him the glory, the praise, and the honor that is due his name.